It's a blessing, obviously, to be in Hawaii for many reasons. I, I, I really appreciate your dress code. Uh, a few of the places I preached at recently, I had to wear a jacket, sometimes a tie, of which I own very few. Uh, our, at our church, I preach in jeans. I, I wear shorts and sandals to the office, so it's a little bit casual. In fact, when I used to drive my kids to school, they would know that I had a meeting with someone outside the church because I, I was wearing a collared shirt and pants. In fact, one time I was wearing a polo. My daughter asked if I had a meeting. I said yes. And you could tell she actually felt bad for me that I had to dress up. Um, and so I said, do you know that some pastors have to wear a suit to work every day? And she said, that is so sad. And I'm like, I know, right? And then my son, who was also in elementary school at the time, asked if I could preach in shorts. And I said, no, I'm, I'm not allowed to do that. And he said, well, I guess I can't be a pastor when I grow up. So... <laughs> If you're wondering why he's not been called into ministry, it's the dress code. So that's all that to say, thank you for not making me wear one of the few ties I own, but it's, it's good to be here. Our family had such a great time uh, on your island. Uh, so grateful with my, my time with your church family. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Acts chapter 2. We're going to look at a sermon by the Apostle Peter in which he discusses the death and resurrection of Christ. And you understand this is not simply so we can look at the truths to get it, that get us into heaven. But as I mentioned yesterday at this seminar, we need to recognize how the gospel speaks to both eternal life and everyday life. And in particular, this death and resurrection is really at the heart of the Christian life. Because on one hand, we feel that the weightiness of living in a world filled with sin and suffering. But on the other hand, we have Christ, the one who helps and saves and transforms, the one who offers hope and joy. So as Christians, we kind of live in that tension between sin and salvation, between heartache and hope, between suffering and glory. Maybe you even feel that right now. On, on one hand, Sunday is not only supposed to be a day of rest, but really the most special day of the week. And yet maybe it feels like just a brief respite from the struggles of life. I know that there's a memorial service after worship today, and that's just a stark reminder of, of the world of suffering that we live in. Or maybe more simply, as you go to work tomorrow, you'll be hammered by another deadline, or, or you work with people that are hard to get along with. Or maybe finances are tight, or your job search seems never-ending, or parenting is really hard right now. And so you'll enjoy Sunday morning, but it's only a brief break from what seems like your reality. Or maybe things are much worse than that. It's so difficult that there's a lot of dissonance going on inside of you right now. In, fall, in the fall, I was at a marathon, obviously not running, uh, but I was watching my wife and a few other people from our church finish the race. And so I'm near the end, and needless to say, people are tired. They look so unhappy, right? Uh, but right in the, which I, I think is a good argument for not to run a marathon, but in the middle of the course, there was this professional photographer, and, as, and they were taking pictures as, as people went by, and you could, I guess, purchase them later. And so you, you see these people, and they're so tired. They look like they just want to beat up whoever convinced them to run. And the minute they see the camera, they smile, right? And it's like, you know. And, and then right when they're past the camera, again, they look like they've just done the most unfun thing in the whole world, which they kind of did. Some of you feel that same way as you come to church, right? You smile, you sing, but it's not really what's going on in your heart because you're in such pain, and seemingly no Sunday morning service is going to change the hurt that you feel, that the cold marriage that you're in, the, the ongoing health problems that make every week, maybe every day, seem somewhat unbearable, that, that broken relationship that hurts to the core. Maybe it's some great loss, some pain, some manner of brokenness, some sense of hopelessness. 
And so it's less that this morning seems like a break and it, it almost seems like a fake, right? Church is kind of the glossy facade of the Christian life. Outwardly you worship, but inwardly you feel miserable. And maybe even now you're asking, likely not out loud, but, but what is there really to rejoice in? Where is God when I need him? Why won't he answer my prayers? Well, this morning, I, I want us to think about the gospel and consider what it means, again, to both eternal life and everyday life. And, and through that, I'm hoping that we see how it makes sense of the tension that we as Christians live in, being intimately equated with suffering and yet still knowing a Savior, what it means to experience both heartbreak and hope. And to do this, we're going to consider both the life and the teaching of Peter. Peter was one of, Peter, uh, of Jesus' great uh, closest followers, some say the leader of the disciples. He was with Christ throughout his earthly ministry. And during that time, Peter would be a man who would know intimately failure and loss, suffering and sin. And yet he becomes this man of great hope who is uniquely used by God to help to start the church as we know it. In fact, the sermon that we're going to look at comes, uh, the passage we're going to look at comes from a sermon that Peter gave not too long after the death and resurrection of Jesus, in which 3,000 people placed their faith in Christ. You can even imagine. Now, in part, Peter was explaining why there was this significant outpouring of the Holy Spirit. He's making sense of why these amazing things were happening around them. And basically, his argument was this. Do you want to know why the world has been turned on end? It's because Jesus has come. And his death and resurrection, and because of his death and resurrection, nothing will ever be the same. Let me read to you just a few verses from the middle of the sermon to help you see what he says about Christ. Acts chapter 2, starting with verse 22. He says, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan, definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. And that's only a, a, a few verses within the sermon. But what I want us to see is how the worst day in the world ended up being the best day, and why in light of that, our hard days can be hopeful days. And that gives us our key idea. The gospel of Jesus allows our hard days to be hopeful days. So point number one, why the worst day was the best day. Why the worst day was the best day. I think we all have bad days. We, we generally all have good days. We're enjoying our time here. In, uh, we enjoyed our time here in Hawaii. Uh, obviously, it's beautiful. The people have been great. Uh, and honestly, for my family, it really is the food. Like, I don't know about you guys when you're on vacation, but we plan it around where we're going to eat. And then if there's something near there we want to see, that's where we end up. Uh, we took the kids to, to Helena's to eat pipicolo ribs. And, and my oldest son, he just got back from college, and he was eating dorm food, and it's not good. And so it's hard to describe the level of joy on his face when he was eating. So imagine like a young woman who has just been proposed to. And then she simultaneously hears that her unsaved grandmother became a Christian. She's not as happy as my son was in that moment, right? <laughs> but as fun as the time we had, we all know that vacations aren't life, right? That's kind of the point. We take vacations because we're trying to get away from life at times. I mean, you live in paradise, and I'm guessing none of you would say your lives are paradise. So why? Like, why do we have bad days? Now, as you likely know, it's because we live in a world devastated by sin. I mean, we remember, after God created the world, and people in particular, everything was perfect. To use the term paradise would not be an exaggeration. But humanity failed, and, and, 
and with the introduction of sin and the curse, the whole world was ruined. Now, at the, at the greatest level, it led to the greatest problem, that we were eternally separated from God, awaiting his just judgment. Sin means, after all, that we have, we've broken God's law. We deserve punishment. And it should be sobering that one day will be the day, the day that will stand before God and answer for our lives. But it isn't just about the day. It's about every day, and specifically why we have bad days. Because sin is not only the, the wrong things we do or that are done to us, but it's the disease that corrupts and infects everything, right? All of creation is poisoned by sin. Sin is the root of every bad day. That's why we have ongoing challenging home situations, financial difficulties, the pain of loneliness, strained relationships with a loved one, athletic or academic or occupational failure. That's why we have divorce, chronic pain, broken friendships, the ruin of cancer, infertility, disability, natural disasters, school shootings, losing uh, loved ones. Now, this being the case, where do we find our hope for these bad days? Now, you might think the answer is in having good days, right? In other words, it seems like the cure to a bad day is then to have a better better day. That's what most of us long for. But actually, our hope for our bad days is found in the worst day. In fact, what we really needed was absolutely the worst day imaginable. So let me explain. So we have this sin problem, but God does not abandon humanity, right? Right after sin entered the world, God promised a Savior who would come and make things right. He then establishes the nation of Israel and said that from that nation would come the rescuer, the one who would save them. And so realize that for all of their history, Israel had been waiting for a Savior. They called him the Messiah. You've likely heard that term. It means the anointed one. The New Testament term is the Christ. And so they looked for this Messiah, this Christ, and they hoped for him. They, they hoped in him. They longed for the one who would save them. And they truly needed saving because though Israel had these moments of greatness, their history was one of deep moral failure. Uh, the, the nation often spiraling into rebellion and idolatry. So imagine century after century of self-inflicted suffering and sin. And through it all, the people wanted the Messiah. They hoped in God's promise of a forever king. The one, the one who would make things right and rule and love and righteousness. And so just try to imagine generation after generation of Jew passing along to their children the hope of Messiah, a prophet, a miracle worker, a savior. I mean, you can almost picture Peter's parents putting him down to sleep at night and telling him one day the Messiah is going to come and he's going to save us. Maybe as they said their prayers by their bedside, they pleaded with the Lord to ascend the anointed one. And then Jesus enters this story, and he could not have come at a more needed time. Israel's in a very bad place, suffering in so many ways, especially as they lived under the oppression of Rome. And into this, Jesus does what no one has done before. I mean, he teaches with authority that that none had ever heard, like he's speaking for God himself. He was living righteously, perfectly, really, always merciful, always loving. Imagine someone whose love was so unique that you couldn't help but notice. He challenges the religious establishment and their hypocrisy. And beyond all this, of course, was the miracles. Giving the blind sight, making the lame walk, casting out demons, calming storming seas, feeding thousands miraculously. And what all this did was make many believe that Jesus was the Messiah, the long-awaited king. And this belief begins to build as Jesus' reputation spread. You, You can imagine the discussions around the dinner table in the synagogue. They're asking, is he the one? Is Jesus the Christ of God? Will he free us from Rome? Will he bring us economic prosperity? 
Then just prior to his death, Jesus performs perhaps his greatest miracle, raising Lazarus after he'd been dead for four days. And this really sends the nation into overdrive. The religious leaders want him dead. Uh, after all, he, he's taking away their people. But for many, they believe Jesus is the king of Israel. And here's the thing. Peter got to see all of it. Now, again, he was part of Christ's inner circle, meaning that no one was a closer witness to his life. No one was a closer friend. He saw the miracles, even performed some on Christ's behalf. He heard him teach. He felt his compassion, mercy. He knew his love. And so Peter believed, as so many did, that Jesus was the Messiah, the Christ of God. In fact, just previous to Jesus' entry into Jerusalem and his date with the cross, Jesus asked Peter who he thinks he is. And Peter says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. That's why in the, verse, the first verse of our passage, verse 22, Peter says this, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst as you yourself know. Peter was saying, Jesus is the one. You saw what he did. You saw the miracles, the signs, the wonders. That was God telling you that he is the Christ. He's the one you were meant to worship and trust. The one you meant to live for and love. So try to picture what all this meant to Peter. He had given up everything to follow Jesus. He, he'd left it all behind, but it all seems worth it because this prophet, this miracle worker was the one Israel had been waiting for. He believed him to not only be the Messiah of God, but God himself. And understand, if you believe that, your whole world is different. I mean, if you believe you're in the very presence of God and that that God loves you and that he came to save you, your whole world is turned on end. So can you picture the hope and the excitement and the joy? I mean, just kind of pause and take that in for a moment. Imagine wanting something your whole life and it shows up and it's infinitely better than you expected. Imagine believing something could make your life right uh, if you had it right there with you. Imagine you had the greatest source of hope, something you believe would change your life forever. How happy would you be? What kind of joy would you feel? What kind of hope would you experience I mean, imagine just believing that just very soon everything's going to be made right. That's why when Jesus tries to warn the disciples of what is to come, that he's going to die, Peter cannot believe it. And the belief is not helped when Jesus and his disciples enter Jerusalem on Palm Sunday and the city is shaking. I mean, the people were praising him, declaring him the king of Israel. And you can imagine how excited Peter must have been as he walked into the city alongside Jesus, people screaming and even worshiping Christ. And all of that is what makes the next line in Peter's sermon so shocking. Memory said, you knew that he's the Christ, verse 23. This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Jesus was tortured, nailed on a cross, and left to die. I mean, it was not only the worst day of Peter's life. Quite simply, it was the worst day in the history of man. On one, hand, on one hand, no one was less deserving of death. I mean, he was purely innocent, never doing anything wrong, perfect in love, always doing everything right. I mean, he was God himself. But not only that, but he was the one who was supposed to save them and to rescue them. And so you can imagine that with his death, so many hopes and dreams died as well. Picture Peter watching Jesus hanging on the cross, struggling for every breath. And yet maybe he held out a little hope. After all, He'd seen Christ's power. He knew he was this miracle worker, even the very Son of God. And so Peter stands hiding among the crowd, hoping beyond hope that Jesus will do one more miracle. 
that he would bring himself down on the cross, that he would lay ruin to the lawless men who were murdering him. But instead, Jesus breathes his last breath, and nothing prepared Peter for that moment. Dreams shattered, hopes lost, faith ruined, future in peril. All right, some of you have experienced suffering that was life-changing, right? That medical diagnosis that, that, was, that was tragic. Your child telling you they want nothing to do with Jesus. Your spouse walking out on you. The news that you can't have children. The, the notice that you lost your job. The phone call that someone you loved has died. I remember walking into the hospital when they were trying to bring my, my father back to life and, and watching them. And then that, that moment, that realization that he, he's gone. And yet nothing was quite like what happened that day with what Peter experienced. I mean, you can almost imagine him having trouble breathing, like he doesn't know what to do next. I mean, he'd given up everything to follow Jesus. Not only that, but he'd already denied him. He didn't want to be arrested and crucified himself. And so Peter, who had said Jesus was the Messiah and that he would die for him, was now alone to deal with his own failure and the seeming failure of the one he had placed his absolute faith in. Okay, so why belabor this idea? Because as we'll look in the next point, if God can use this situation to do something good, then quite simply, there is no circumstance in your life that God cannot use for your good. But first, we must consider, well, how could God use the death of Jesus for good? Remember the reason that the disciples abandoned Christ is that they saw no reason to follow a dead man. There was no purpose in this story. There's no purpose in this in Jesus' story, uh, but there was purpose in this and Jesus' story was not over. So Peter continues, Acts verse 23, This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the, the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Now that last line begs the question, why was it not possible for death to hold on to Jesus? After all, it's held on to everyone else. Think about it. I read it. There is an estimated, over the course of time, 117 billion people have lived on our planet. I'm not sure who counted that, but it's a big number. And death has a perfect record, right? No one lives forever. 117 billion to zero. So how does Jesus escape this? In fact, why does Peter say it wasn't even possible for death to hold on to Jesus? Well, to understand that, we have to remember what really was happening in the death of Jesus. Remember I said that earlier that we're sinners destined for, for, to die, deserving hell. What was there to do? I mean, if we're going to go free, and yet for justice to be served, the only thing that could happen is if someone took our place, right? If someone took the punishment we deserve, if someone suffered hell for us, that way justice could still be served, but we could still be forgiven, and that, beloved, is what Jesus was doing on the cross. As Peter himself would write in his first letter, 1 Peter 3.18, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. So on the cross, Jesus wasn't just suffering a physical death. That was a very small part of it. No, he was suffering the very wrath of God for all who put their faith in him. Meaning that God treated Jesus like he lived my life with all its sin and all its ugliness and punished him for it so that I could then be treated like I lived Jesus' perfect life with all its love and mercy. He was treated like a sinner so I could be treated like a son. He suffered hell so one day I would know heaven. It was the worst day and it was the best day. And this explains why death could not hold Jesus because he accomplished victory 
over sin and death. It wasn't possible for death to hold Jesus because death had lost its power. That's the resurrection. It's the proof that Jesus surely did defeat sin and death. And so do you see why we say it was the worst day and it was the best day? Jesus, the Son of God, was murdered so that we could live forever. He suffered so that one day we will never suffer again. The worst day and the best day. If you're a believer, you, you know these truths, you believe them. But if you're not a Christian, maybe someone invited you today, maybe your spouse makes you come, maybe you grew up in the church, but if you're honest, you don't have real faith. I hope you realize how much you need Jesus. Because you can look all you want to the world to provide you with some measure of happiness or joy, but just know, as Augustine points out, your heart will always be restless until it rests in Christ. And so here's what I hope for you. I hope today's your worst day and your best day. I hope it's your worst day because you realize for the first time that you are a sinner before a holy God, and there is absolutely nothing you can do about it on your own. But I also hope it's your best day because you are willing to put your faith in Jesus and you know forgiveness and eternal life. Okay, we need to move on. So point number two, let's then look at how, why our hard days can be hopeful days. When things are difficult, where do you turn? My guess is Google. Like, there's a lot of information on the interweb, right? I found out a little while later that Google even has answers the Bible doesn't. My son had a project on Zacchaeus for school, so we're looking at the passage together. And he says, well, how tall was Zacchaeus? And I said, I don't, I, we don't know, because the Bible doesn't say. So he says what you would expect from a kid from that generation. He said, I'll Google it. I'm like, you can't Google it, right? We don't know. And then he says, Google says he's 4'10". I'm like, I don't know if that's canon. I'm not sure. But honestly, often when we have difficulties and try to solve a problem, we literally Google. Like if you get a medical diagnosis, what's the first thing you do? You go to Google. But let's look at what it means to go to God. Now looking at our passage, if forgiveness was all there was to the gospel, we would have enough reason for us to praise God for eternity. We deserve hell. We're given heaven. I could say amen. We could end the sermon. Some of you wish I would. But the gospel does more than that. Because the fact that the worst day was the best day, it means that our hard days can be hopeful days. Why? Like I mentioned earlier, if God can use the greatest tragedy in human history to bring about the greatest blessing in human history, then shouldn't we trust that he can use the suffering in our life to accomplish a greater good? I mean, what is beyond his wisdom? What escapes his power? What eludes his love? I know all of you have experienced suffering. Some of you are in the throes of it right now. Do you realize that all is not lost? That even now, God is doing far more than you can possibly imagine. This is why Peter was so transformed. That's why his first letter he wrote is, it's such a, it offers so much powerful hope that we can have in suffering. He wrote this in 1 Peter 1, 6 and 7. He said, in this he rejoiced, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuinely of your faith, more precious than gold, that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Right? In the gospel, he believed in the powerful work that God could do even in the refiner's fire. Church history tells us that later on, Peter too would be crucified. And yet listen to the words he says later in 1 Peter, 1 Peter 3, 14. But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. I mean, that boggles the mind. You'll, you'll suffer, and yet you're going to know blessing. So he says, have no fear. 
nor be troubled. Peter's life was powerfully changed, and so should ours. So let me offer two things to remember as you try to have faith that God is loving you, even in the sufferings of life. We could call them two fuels for our hope. First, it's, it's, go, knowing God's, it's God's knowing sovereignty, and second, it's God's loving story. First, as, as, we, as we journey, journey through the, the joys and sorrows of life, we have to remember God's knowing sovereignty. The idea that God is sovereign means that he has planned all of life, and ours in particular, according to his will. In verse 23 of our passage, Peter says, This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. It's somewhat of a shocking statement. Christ's death was God's plan all along. This wasn't about God seeing some wrong and trying to fix it. No, before time, God had a plan to bring about salvation. And understand, God has absolute power to accomplish exactly what he intends. We, we could look all over the Bible and really all over creation for, for uh, evidence of his limitless power. But in our passage, we probably have the greatest evidence. God holds life and death in his hands. Again, verse 24, it was not possible for death to hold him. Meaning that Christ is so powerful that death itself becomes impotent. That, that death loses its strength. It loses its sting. The idea being, if God can overcome death itself, should we doubt his ability to do anything else? I mean, can you even imagine? God does what he wills. There's nothing outside his purview. There is no suffering so large that he's handicapped by it. There is no tragedy beyond his control. And importantly, his suffering wasn't just accomplished by his limitless power, but it was guided by his infinite wisdom and knowledge. Right? He says this was according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. In other words, God's sovereignty is guided by his perfect knowledge. He's never surprised. God has never reacted to something that was unexpected ever. He moves and acts with perfect wisdom. So slow down and consider that for a moment. As one of God's children, he orchestrates your life perfectly. By that, I don't mean without difficulty or without suffering, but perfectly for you. Perfectly to accomplish what he, he needs to in your life, both circumstantially and spiritually. But it's not just his knowing sovereignty, but his loving story. In other words, God is both powerful and wise, but he, uh, if he doesn't plan our, uh, he doesn't plan our my lives merely as some indifferent tyrant, in other words, if God used his power and wisdom in a way that was indifferent to who we are, then we're without hope. But this is not our God. And so what we, see, we need to see is this, this story, it's actually our story. And it's a story that shows his love for us, right? In verse 23, it says that God delivered up Christ. It's a word that's only used here in scripture, but elsewhere, the same idea is used and connected to the idea of love. John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. 1 John 4, 9, in this the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his only son. The sending of Jesus was the greatest act of love the world has ever known. And here's the point. We shouldn't consider the gospel from a distance and simply think, wow, God is powerful or he's sovereign. That's our story. This is the greatest act of love the universe has ever known, and it was on our behalf. He is powerful for us. He is strong for us. And understand, it's more than just like God has this fond affection for you. 
The gospel says so much more. As Romans 8.32 points out, if God loved us enough to sacrifice his son, then we must believe with the deepest of conviction that God will always and forever act in love towards us. Now backing up to the big picture, as we combine God's sovereignty and love, what does this mean? That God has orchestrated our lives with all its difficulties for our good. Even suffering has a purpose. Because absolutely nothing is lost in God's economy. There's meaning to all of it. Now, we won't understand everything that God is doing. But one sure thing is that he's making us more like Christ. And that's the greatest treasure we could ask for. Because it means he's making us more like the person with the greatest hope and the the greatest courage and the greatest conviction and the greatest love and the greatest trust and the greatest mercy, really the greatest peace and the greatest joy. Consider that for a moment. If you're suffering, and all of you are in some way, understand that though there are thousands of things you don't even realize that God is accomplishing, you will know one day. But one sure way, one sure one is this. He's making you more like Christ in the absolute best possible way. He's doing a good work in you that he might do a good work through you. With that in place, let me offer two simple applications before we close. First, be humble with God's plan. In other words, be careful how you make sense of life because life won't always make sense. I think one of the greatest stumbling blocks to believing that our hard days can be hopeful days is that we just can't picture any good coming from our suffering, at least not a good that's worth it. It does not seem possible that some evil or suffering in your life can end up for the betterment. Like, so we ask, like, how can chronic pain or aging or loss or singleness or brokenness, how can that be for my good? But we must be humble and believe that just because we don't understand God's plan doesn't mean that it's not good or right. Mainly because he's infinitely wiser than we are. One of the things I often discuss with those that I counsel, counsel is this. When Jesus was crucified, no one thought it was a good idea. Right? No one could possibly fathom the idea that a murdered Christ would be okay. There was no purpose in the Messiah of God hanging lifeless on a cross. They only understood it as the worst day because they couldn't fathom that it could be the best day. But it should remind us that God had a greater and better purpose that was so much bigger than they could even possibly imagine. And that's what we have to believe for our lives as well. We have to believe that at the worst day can be the best day, then our hard days can be hopeful days. We have to be humble enough to say, I don't know what God is doing but I believe it's loving and I believe it's for my good. Right? Some of you are hurting in ways that I can't even fathom. Like you, you lie awake at night. You feel like you, you have little time with your own thoughts before suffering kind of intrudes again. You struggle every single day. And I, I don't know. I don't know all that God is doing, but I do know this. My lack of knowledge is not what determines if what is happening in your life is good or bad. Because Roman 8 tells us, for, for Christians, God is working it all for our good. And the second application is, be hopeful in God's love. Hard things can be hopeful things because of God's love. We, we've already discussed this, but it bears repeating, God is constantly loving us. After all, Scripture tells us that absolutely nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. Meaning that even through suffering, God is loving us. And understand, it's, it's not enough to think, okay, God will show me love when I suffer. 
No, we have to realize he doesn't just love us in our sufferings. He actually loves us through them. Because if God's love is as relentless and powerful as Scripture tells us it is, that means that nothing passes into your life that hasn't first passed through the filter of his love. As Charles Spurgeon put it, he said, remember this, had any other condition been better for you than the one you, in which you are right now, divine love would have put you there. So this may be hard to hear, but, but God uses suffering for our good. But if we see it within the context of God's love, suffering takes on almost a dark beauty that will one day shine brightly in us and through us. And so with that, I don't want to simplify it because some of you, again, are suffering severely. And I don't want you to think that I'm not acknowledging the pain that you're in. But at the same time, we must see suffering within the context of God's sovereign love, which means he's using trials to accomplish whatever is best for your life by whatever means necessary. Remember this, the point of suffering isn't to better understand your suffering. It's to better understand your Savior. Because when you understand him, Regardless of what suffering comes your way, you will move forward with faith and joy, knowing God is at work in your life. And so you must draw near to God. Let me close with this. For me, I don't, I don't preach this simply for you. Like, like I figured it out. I'm hoping you can do better. The, the reality that my hard days can be hopeful days because of God's love, it's one of the, the single most impactful truths that I cling to in the difficulties of life. And it's kind of interesting because I've had the blessing of going to seminary and, and to study counseling. And yet that first lesson I learned in Sunday school, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. It's the one I still hold on to the most tightly. As I realize that God's love is more than fond affection. Rather, he is constantly, actively seeking my good, even through suffering. It changes how I see everything. And I am constantly reminding myself, not just that God generally has a love for me, but that in those moments, uh, that's exact, with, with exactly what has happened, God is loving me. So if, if, if I'm, I'm criticized in ministry or I've had a tough conversation with someone, I, I'm reminding myself in that moment, Lord, this is you loving me. I needed that. You, you must be doing something. You're being kind. You're rescuing me from myself. You're, you're showing yourself to be trustworthy. You're revealing my sin. You're encouraging my faith. If it were in any way better not to be criticized, then it wouldn't have happened. And so thank you for loving me. That's what I'm doing. I'm just reminding myself, Lord, this is you loving me. And it's all of life. If, I, if I'm lying in bed at night because I'm worried about one of my kids or if my wife and I have had a disagreement or if I suffer another setback in my health or I make a decision that doesn't turn out so well or I feel the weightiness of ministry, it's in those moments I need to hold on to something much greater than the world's cliches or my own strength or hopes for better circumstances. By faith, I need to cling on to the love of Christ, believing that he is kindly allowing what he is because he wants more for me than I ever want for myself. Because when I do that, when I can look beyond my suffering and beyond my circumstances to see the love of my Savior, then everything is different. I love the way Paul Tripp writes about it in his devotional, New Morning Mercies. He says, The cross is evidence that in the hands of the Redeemer, moments of apparent defeat become wonderful moments of grace and victory. 
He rules over every moment in your life. And in powerful grace, he's able to do for you just what he did in redemptive history. He takes the disasters in your life and makes them tools of redemption. He takes your failures and employs it as tools of grace. He uses the death of the fallen world to motivate you to reach out for life. The hardest things in your life become the sweetest tools of grace in his wise and loving hands. Will you pray with me? Dearly Father, we thank you for your grace and mercy, for the opportunity we've had to, to consider the gospel, what it means not only for eternal life, but everyday life. And we thank you, Lord, for your kindness in our sufferings. I know some here who have such heavy hearts, who are having trouble just making it through the day, maybe had difficulty just sitting through this sermon. But I pray, Lord, that these hard days would be hopeful days. Not because they understand everything that you're doing, but because they understand your love. And they want to hold on to it more than anything else. We thank you, Lord. We love you. We praise you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.